You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses add value and prepare for the future. Hello and welcome to another in the series of Trowers and Hamlins Positive Influences podcasts. I'm Sarah Bailey, senior partner at Trowers and Hamlins, and our guest today is Martin Evans, the creative director of You and I. Hi, Martin. Hello, Sarah. I'm very, very happy to be here to, with you today. It's lovely to have you. Um, you're the creative director at you and I, which in itself is, a, is, is quite an unusual title with, within a developer. Can you explain a little bit more about what you do and what your role is in the business? Yes, I can. Um, and you're right. I've only ever met one other person in our industry who had that job title, who's Bev Churchill, who did my job at Capco, uh, particularly around Common Garden, the redevelopment of Common Garden. I think that I like my job title because it indicates that the industry that we're all in is a creative one. And it, and it is. And so I'm sad that there are not more people who've got my job title. Making places that are good for people, that make people happy and fulfilled and create jobs and provide homes and beautiful green space and landscaping and retail and food and drink and play and for children and for old people is an immensely creative job. And we surround ourselves with creative people from architects and landscape designers and artists and graphic designers, and I would even venture to say lawyers. And so my job really is to get the most creatively out of all of those people who come together around a large regeneration development project to make sure that those projects are as creative as possible. And that that's a very broad and wide definition of what I do, but that's because my job is very broad and wide. And it's about as specific as it gets in terms of my description of what I do. And actually, I mean, slightly following on on that on that point, and we um, the last podcast we did was with a, a small firm of uh, they don't really call themselves architects; they call them, think of themselves as projects. It was it was um, JA Projects and Jaden who yes. was it there, and that found that quite fascinating because that was that was almost like the nexus between culture and uh, design, culture and and and, re- and the built environment, and that that to me sort of sums up sort of where you are because you're, you're looking at bringing everything together in, in a different way. Yep. Uh, so it's because of what we do here at you and I, you know, we are, we are complex mixed use regeneration developers. And that means that effectively what we're doing is taking typically large pieces of land that are parts of cities or big towns and remaking them from their current status, which is usually dead, buried, derelict, unused and unloved into parts, new and thriving parts of cities. And in order to do that, we almost have to relatively quickly make a part of a city look and feel and operate as if it had taken 100 years to get to where it is like other parts of cities and in order to do that we have to understand the complexity of life and the complexity of people's lives and that's an innately creative thing and it involves satisfying people's need for work satisfying their need for places to live that are inspiring and safe and lovely uh, places for people to educate and their children and keep them safe. Places for people to not be lonely, for people to shop and eat and sit on some grass and look at some trees. Uh, and that's really a joyful job. It's wonderful to gather a group of people together to think about how you might wrangle all of those things and bring them together to create profitable property development that makes money also for our shareholders. Uh, and so it, it's a complicated detailed, multi-layered, 
exciting, terrifying job. <laughs> I, I think you and I have had lots of conversations in, in, in the past about, I suppose, a slightly overused word now about placemaking, but, mm. but how, what that really means um, mm. and and the social societal impact of of placemaking and, and how the built yeah. environment affects people's lives. And, you know, yeah. you know I'm, I'm quite passionate about this in, in, in non-legal area, but just passionate about actually how it works in practice. I know you are. Yes, I know. As you say, we have had many conversations about that in the past. I, I don't like that word, placemaking, Sarah. Yeah. I'm a bit grumpy about it. And, and for a good reason, not because I don't think that we need to make good places, but because of what that word has come to be defined as in our industry, which feels to me a bit like a sort of add-on to as if development is one thing. And if you're, if you're minded to, you might do a bit of placemaking. Yeah. And typically that means putting a few extra trees and some nice benches down. My view is that there is either good development or bad development. And if you do good development, then you are making decent places, good places. And you can do that with 25 acres of the centre of a global city like Manchester, as I am at the moment with my colleagues. Or you could do that if you've got one building that's contributing to the regeneration of a part of a town or a city. You don't have to be in control of vast swathes of land in order to make good places. You can do have one building, you can have one house on a street and be responsible for adding something significant and careful to the environment where you're building and so for me i want good placemakers to just be good developers and if we continue to talk about this thing called placemaking it, it feels to me like it becomes a work stream rather than the very essence of what we all get out of bed to do every day so i don't really like it i think that we just need to learn better how to be good developers yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was talking to someone else actually the other day who we were both saying that we think it's almost become a bit of a, it, it's it's sad that it's actually become almost a tick box. It's like, yes. oh, we've got, to, we've got to tick a box. And that's a disaster. It's yeah. a disaster because yeah. it deflects away from the conversations we really ought to be having, which is how we be better developers and how we be more thoughtful developers and how we challenge this notion that we developers are rapacious, awful people who ruin places and ruin people's lives and steal all their money and don't care about them. So just following that one through, I mean, there's a, there's a huge focus for all businesses at, at the moment with another acronym, ESG or responsible business, mm. or whichever way you, whatever mm. you want to tag it. Mm. Um, and obviously the E and climate change is huge. Um, and in some ways you might argue that is easier in sense of understanding what has to be done um, yeah. I'm not saying it's easy to actually achieve, but but it, it, it's it's not as perhaps as nebulous as the S in the ESG. Yeah. And obviously, we've we've done our own research in terms of societal impact. But what what do you for you? What does it mean? What do you think the well, S means for you when it comes so to development? What I don't object to are thoughtful, good measurement systems that help us to be better developers. And I think that the conversation around ESG is only going in one direction, which is about developing policies and processes and ideas that are about making us all better developers. Because if we can, if we can create rule books and guidebooks and measurement processes that check that what we're doing is good, then all the better. And particularly if those things are universal and are signed up to by everybody so that they begin to start being standards 
Now, when I was a, a youngster, I started my career working at the body shop and we were one of the first listed companies to publish an environmental report on our on our operation. And so over the 25 years since that happened, obviously we have got very sophisticated measurement systems for the EBIT of ESG and we all use, you know, Briam and, uh, and all of the systems like that that encourage us to understand better how we make our buildings. But the SBIT is absolutely crucial and is very new in its incarnation. And there are many, many measurement systems available for understanding how better to do it, but no universal systems yet acknowledged by everybody, but it will come. For me, it's about, again, being at the core of being good developers and creating places that sustain communities. So how do we understand that the development we're making contributes positively to the sustainability of life and communities in the places where we build. Now, at its simplest level, it's about satisfying conditions in planning applications, about creating job opportunities, delivering marginal revenues into local authority coffers, those things that are just about being economically sustainable. But if we understand that wherever we develop, we are having an impact on people's lives that is about more healthy children, less lonely old people, more sustainable long-term jobs for people who uh, have been long-term unemployed. Simply a place where you can go and buy a pint of milk less than four minutes walk from your front door. The ability to go to the doctor without having to drive in a car or get on a bus contributes to the sustainability of a community. Access to green space, contribution to biodiversity, a net net positive contribution to biodiversity. Uh, all, all of those things are about understanding that the job we have is about making people's lives better, because what else is it for? Now, of course, we should, as commercial developers, we should have the right to make a profit for the money we invest doing those things. But that aside, if, if you take that as a given, if you're good at it, and you take that as a given, then of course we have to understand. We do. It's too important what we do to not understand the impact that it has on our lives. And every day and the years that we spend developing our large projects, we have decisions to make. And those decisions are important. And we've got a choice. So we've got choices every day about doing it one way or another. And so we have to be mindful all the time that the choices we are making impact on people's lives. Maybe long after we've quit and left, because if we are as most developers are develop and sell or develop and move on, then we can't be unaware of the contributions that we need to be making to the places where we build. It's also good business. I mean, you know, we're, we, most of our schemes are partnerships with local authorities. If we don't do well, we aren't going to get any new business. And so I keep impressing on my colleagues here that there's no shame in building fantastically successful to socially sustainable developments that are also fantastically profitable for our shareholders and contribute to the sustainability of our own business. If all of that works together, well, sweet. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, looking at your business, I mean, initially it was Cathedral. Um, and yeah. I remember the very early days, with, with Cathedral. I think it's fair to say that 
as as a uh, no matter what the name has been with its cathedral and then becomes you and I and now part of, of Landsec, it, it, you've always from a very early doors had that vision and you've always kept mm. that vision of creating places that that are long lasting and that, that are there for life as I call them. Um, do you think the focus on the ESG agenda um, in recent times has made that even more relevant to you, or do you think you've always done it? It's just something that's always been in your psyche. We've always done it. I got a bit of a kicking in Property Week the other week for being a bit arrogant, for just assuming that everybody would accept that we've always done it and therefore we must be good at it. And I took that because I, I sort of agreed, OK, I, uh, I'm, I get you. If we're not actually explaining and telling mm. what we're doing, then wh- why should we just expect anybody to understand what it is that we do? And why should that then re- be reflected in any share price movement or in any success of of our company and so I took that um kicking it, it's a difficult one to explain Sarah I Richard Upton who started Cathedral who I've worked with here still now at you and I Lansac for more than 23 years when he was on his own at a desk starting his company and I then joined him and became employee number two I think I was in the late 90s the, the vision of that company was a very 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 personal vision of his it was just the way that he woke up every morning and wanted to come to work and behave. And so he pushed ahead being a very successful entrepreneurial property developer, but from a position of great personal integrity and personal interest in wanting to run that business in a particular way. As I said, I'd come to working with Richard from working at the body shop with another great, inspiring entrepreneur, Anita Roddick, who really taught me everything that I wanted to know about how businesses ran and again her business started inside her own head operating a very traditional business of beauty skincare that could have been boots and could have been super drug and but ended up being the body shop because of the way that she wanted to approach the world so I do believe it starts from somebody's heart as much as from somebody's head and wallet and appraisal uh, viability viability appraisal and so as much as in our company here we can encourage our colleagues to continue to fight the good fight develop our business in the way that we want part of that encouragement has to be personal it has to be do you want to come to work every day and make a difference and make good money and keep our shareholders happy and keep your job and have a good career and earn good bonuses and do a great job, but do you want to come to work every day feeling like you're making a difference? And if the answer to that is no, then I'm not sure that you're going to last very long in our company. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I think I think all of this is if you don't really really believe it, and it's not in your heart, in your in your, in your psyche, then actually you can speak speak, but you actually won't yeah. deliver because it just quite right. it's got yeah. to be part of who you are. So, so looking at that and looking um, away now a bit from you and I to you as an individual, and you've done, mm. I mean, I hadn't realised you started at Body Shop. That's absolutely fascinating. Mm. Um, but you did well, I started of... my career properly, uh, I'll admit, being a gossip columnist on the Daily Mail. Oh, That's where I started my career. And I didn't do it for very long because it was a ghastly, awful job. <laughs> and I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> But, but looking at looking at as long as I've known you, that, so the wider interest you have, how do you look to have a positive influence on the things that you're doing? And because uh, you've always, I mean, from my from my perspective, you have a very positive look on, outlook on life, and you do try and make it a, nice. a difference. Thank you. 
I'm restless, Sarah, and and I've always been, uh, I've always not been particularly interested in my job finishing at five o'clock because I love my job and I love the subject that I spend my day thinking about and I love my colleagues and the people you know like, like you that I meet every day who are fascinating people in every corner of our industry who are just interesting people who care about their work and bother about the things that they do. And that is, I can't imagine anything worse than having a job that you didn't really care about. You know, it's just, it's just doesn't fit in my life. But as I say, when I was young, I went to work for Anita Roddick. And uh, the day I met, first day I met her, I just thought this is the most amazing person I'm ever going to meet in my whole life. And she filled me every day with inspiration and excitement about the work that I was doing. And to the point where you almost sort of forget that you're making soap and shampoo and imagining that you're trying to change the world. And yeah. she said that she should you shouldn't get out of bed every morning unless you get out of bed with the intention of making the world a tiny, teeny bit better before you get back in your bed at the end of the day. And some days you might not succeed, but you should at least try. And I can't imagine why you'd want to live your life any other way, to be honest. And I think that, What's interesting to me about this business that I sort of fell into years and years ago is that the property industry, like the legal industry, touches everybody's lives. Mm. It, it touches every part of everybody's lives because nothing that we do from getting born to dying to getting sick and being healed and going to school and learning and growing up and falling in love and having families and eating and playing and watching TV, everything happens in or around a building. And so we have the most enormous opportunity to impact on people's lives and make them better. And why would you do anything? Why would you want to come to work to do anything else other than that? So what would you, looking back there, and I think from what you're saying is one of the best pieces of advice you have been given is that from Anita about every day looking yeah. to see how you can make the world a better place, which I think is, that is yeah, that's, that's really inspiring, actually. There are many different things that define us, and and, um, and I was challenged with this the other week, actually, when someone said to me, or he listened to one of our podcasts and said, well, you know, what what are the key events that have helped me define my outlook? Why why am I who mm. I am? And and it's really quite difficult, actually, when you, when you get the question back at you. But what would you say is the key events that have helped you define who you are and what your outlook in life is? In the early 90s, I went to live in New York, to and I, I, I know, honestly, I was just young and um, I was 25 years old, and I did, you know, I'd been to the States once before, and I, I, I didn't really think about what it meant to just pick your life up and go and live in another country, and um, uh, and I just went, and I went there with a team of people to introduce the body shop to the States. There was a few, a few shops, but it was not big, and they were about to invest a large amount of money and establish the business in the USA. And I went with a team of people to do that. And I'd worked a few years in the company before that point and had gotten to the place where I was very proud of my job and proud of the company that I worked for and felt very passionately about the company. And I arrived in a country who would never, where no single person had ever heard of that business or Anita or anything. And it was a really famous British company by then. Yeah, and so if you went to a party on Saturday night and somebody said, "Oh, what do you do for a job?" and he said, "I work for the body shop," at that time in the late eighties or nineties, they would have said, "Oh, do you?" Uh, because it was that sort of cool and fashionable. And so I turned up in in New York, and it didn't occur to me to behave in any different, any other way than to just assume that everybody knew this company that I worked for, and 
so I just marched through life. What might have appeared to have some bit of arrogance attached to it that, that here am I with this amazing job and this amazing company, you better flip and listen to me. And, and it was it took a little while for me to realise that that sort of quizzical look that people responded with when I said, I'm Martin and I'm from the body shop, and but then didn't give them a chance to say, I don't know what that is, was a really interesting way to approach life. That if you are passionate and excited and confident and you love what you do, it's infectious. Yeah. And and so I learned really young in my job about that, that you shouldn't be any other way than passionate and love your job and try to encourage everybody that you meet every day to understand the subject that you're there to discuss with as much fun and vigour as you think about it. And if you do that, then you make friends very easily and people are very welcoming and open and helpful. And uh, it's a good way to approach life. So that's that was a big lesson that I learned, sort of by accident, but a nice lesson. I think if you worked with work with with us at, at Trowers, um, I would find something that because I get told off for being too positive. I get told oh. I'm, too, I'm too positive, oh. too. Jo- I was going <laughs> to swear then. That's rubbish. <laughs> but it's interesting because I always say, well, if you can't be positive, then it's really sad, isn't it? There's oh my god, it's really sad. Anita, Anita told me that. Um, she in all of our offices it was all a bit 80s and 90s but in all of our offices we had words written all over the walls and in anita's office it said i remember very clearly it said if you think you're too small to make a difference you've never been in bed with a mosquito <laughs> and and I, I think that's a good lesson to learn to to learn. Like that. In, on my office i inherited a legend on the wall that said nature is a cold damp place where birds fly around uncooked and I wasn't entirely sure what that was supposed to teach me, but it made me laugh every day. <laughs> so there's something we're asking everybody in this in this uh, podcast series, which is what one thing would you like to positively influence over like the next year or the next five years? If you, one thing. Uh, uh, young people. I worry about young people. Um, I worry about the... God, I sound like an old git, don't I? I worry <laughs> about the the pressures you know when I was 18 and went off to college and then at 21 when I left college it didn't it 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 wouldn't have occurred to me for one single second that I might not get a job and Mm. that when I got that job I would then get a better job and then I would get promoted and I'd get a better job I, I just was absolutely totally confident and I think it was a confidence of the time and the economy at the time that that meant that I just saw my career ahead of me on an upward curve. And I'm very aware through now members of my family and I have six godchildren who don't think that way at all. And they think very, very differently about the world around them and what's available to them and how difficult that sometimes that um, landscape in front of them is. So I worry about young people. You know, we've got quite a lot of young people in our company. And so I, it makes me want to do stuff. So I started in five years ago, I started an organization called the Young Architects and Developers Alliance, which was an attempt to bring young architects and developers together uh, to network and meet each other and debate and discuss and learn from each other. Because um, I think that one of the biggest problems of our industry is that architects and developers don't understand each other. And given that that's one of the most important symbiotic relationships that makes our business work, it's it's astounding to me that that's the truth. But it is. You know, I teach quite a bit. I teach it. I teach on architecture courses and I lecture to, 
development surveying students. And when I meet the architecture students, I ask them, when did you last see a development appraisal? And no hands go up, not one ever. And then I ask the development students, when did you last go on a tour of a Sterling Prize nominated building? And no hands go up. So it starts young, that Mars and Venus thing between architects and developers. And so I just thought it was interesting to start a way of them being in a room together and understanding each other, particularly because, you know, when I was that age, when I was young, starting this industry, we were all here in business to solve other people's problems. Whereas young people today, in, in my co young colleagues, they are suffering those things that we are in business to try to solve. They can't afford to live near where they work. They can't afford to live near their families. They probably going to struggle to get a mortgage anytime soon. And, and all of those issues are things that we can have an impact on, how we can develop more affordable, achievable housing and um, spread the, the ability to live in more mixed com communities. So we, I, I hired a room in a pub and uh, sent an email out to some friends and asked them to sh share with their colleagues and thought that, you know, 50 young people might come and I'd just buy some booze and we'd have a bit of a networking evening and 900 people applied for tickets. So suddenly we had to slightly change the plan. So we borrow, I borrowed a building from you and I, and we um, had a party and I got, I got Richard to uh, agree to put some money. And so we, and so, and 600 people ended up coming and having fun in the, in the building. And we've stopped by lockdown, obviously, but we've done four events a year since then, and they've been phenomenally successful. And then we do smaller events in between and sort of CPD learning things uh, that feels important to me uh, to support the young people in our industry and help them to grow and feel more confident in their careers and uh, be better at what they can do. I think we. I, I think the other part of that is we can learn so much from them too. I, I Most find definitely, amazingly, amazing how many people my age don't don't think they can, but you can. I mean, and I think uh, my eyes are opened every day just by my own kids and the things they're going through. And I think, wow, yeah, okay, that well, is important. I well, I wanted, I wondered, I, I'm wondering more and more as I'm in my mid-50s, at what point I'm going to get to the point where I am my father. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stop. Or when am I going to start saying things that I rolled my eyes at my father when he said, you know, oh, I don't understand all this newfangled technology. <laughs> You know, I'm afraid I say that about Instagram and TikTok. And so it's upon us, I think, to be more open-minded and listen and learn. That's what that's what it's about. I feel very aware of that as I get older. Absolutely. I think we've got to the end of our time. But thank you so no. much. I know. We've been talking for a long time. And, but it, that was really, really interesting. And thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. And like I say, I'm absolutely fascinated about the body shop experience. I'm going to have to talk to you more about that. Thank uh, you very really much. I appreciate you inviting me to do this. Thank you. Pleasure. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.